I am an alcoholic. You know, I didn't get here by mistake. Um, I was told just before I came away, actually, by one of the uh, AA big book step fanatics that I tend to uh, associate with in my meetings that my sobriety date is the 11th of August, 1993. I didn't know exactly when it was, but it was, I knew it was uh, sometime in August, but he kept a track, and it's the, the 11th, so next, uh, next week I will have been sober for 11 years. Um, but that's no big deal, because my mother's been sober for 78 years. You know, she's one of these irritating people that's just never got drunk. She just doesn't drink at all. You know? So I don't really see why I should be congratulating myself for not doing stuff that I shouldn't have been doing in the first place. She just sort of seems to just, doesn't bother. So that's not where my genes came from, I don't think. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my, uh, about my drinking. Uh, that is why I'm here. Um, I'll tell you about the first drink that I can remember having an effect. Uh, and it was in 1974. Uh, I was 16 years old. And at that stage, my parents had a, a holiday cottage in a little village called Robin Hood's Bay on the, uh, the Yorkshire coast. It's a beautiful, beautiful little holiday village uh, in North Yorkshire. And we used to go there every summer holiday and spend all, the summer, all our holidays there. Uh, and at that time, in the, in the sort of the, the early mid-70s, uh, it was sort of the end of the hippie era. And there was loads of hippies who used to congregate at Robin Hood's Bay and spend the summer holidays there. And my older sister used to associate with all of these, uh, these long-haired hippies. And I wanted to be a long-haired, laid-back, far-out-together man, hippie. You know, that's what I wanted to be. These were my, uh, my heroes. Um, and one evening, my sister and some of her friends invited me down to the pub with them. And I said, yeah. So we went down, and we, we sat in the, uh, outside the pub at the, uh, the bottom of the village. It was a gorgeous summer's evening, clear blue skies, and we were sitting outside this pub, and somebody asked me if I wanted a drink, and I said, yeah. And they said, well, what do you want? So I said, well, I don't know. I went on a spotty 16-year-old gangly school kid. I'd never been in a pub before. I'd never had an alcoholic drink in, in my life before that I could remember. Um, I didn't know. And they bought me a bottle of La Motte Lager, you know, and Leland was saying about remembering the first drink. I can remember every single thing about that first drink. You know, I can remember the colour of it. I can remember the taste of it. I can remember the glass it was served in. I can remember that it was cold and it was fizzy and it didn't taste particularly nice to me. It, was, uh, it wasn't sweet. I mean, at that stage, the only sweet stuff that I'd... Well, the only cold, fizzy stuff that I'd had was sweet things like lemonade and Coca-Cola and things like that. Uh, and I didn't like it, I didn't like the taste of it, didn't really like anything about it. But I drank it, because I'm in front of all of these long-haired, laid-back hippies that I wanted to be like. And it's the rules. I've since discovered if somebody buys you a drink, you have to drink it. So I drank this thing. Uh, and nothing really happened. Um, and somebody suggested going for a walk along the cliff path. And I can remember we walked through the village, and we were walking up this cliff path... Uh, and halfway or along this, uh, the climb up to the, to the top of the cliffs, I just got this absolutely tremendous feeling of euphoria. And it was like nothing that I'd ever felt before. It was just like, you know, the way I kind of describe what I think of it of is, is the cliffs are 200 feet high and I'm floating another 200 feet high above, above those. 
I, it sort of, it felt like I'd suddenly become one of these long-haired, laid-back, far-out hippies that I wanted to be. You know, my, I felt like I wanted to feel like. Um, and it lasted for hours. And I went to bed that night and uh, woke up the next morning and I had absolutely no negative consequences from that first drink at all. It was just fantastic. And the next night, they invited me to go to the pub again. And I said, yeah. So we went down to the pub and somebody asked me what I, drink, what, what I wanted to drink and I knew, a bottle of Lamotte Lager. So I had this second bottle of Lamotte Lager the next night and the same thing happened. Uh, unfortunately, somebody also bought me a Southern Comfort that night. And I have never, up to that point, I'd never, ever, ever felt as ill in my life before. Because I used to get absolutely horrible, horrible hangovers and horribly ill with alcohol. I had to, I really had to put a lot of effort into becoming an alcoholic, I tell you. I used to get to a, a point of inebriation where the room would start to spin. And as soon as the room started to spin, that was it. I'd lost control and I would start vomiting and I'd, I'd just get these horrible nausea. Uh, and it would last until I finally got to sleep. And then when I woke up the next morning, I'd still feel the same. I'd just be retching with nothing to bring up and horrible headaches. And that would last for hours, usually to sort of lunchtime. Uh, and strangely enough, I didn't see that as a warning. Or I did see it as a warning in some respect. Well, I think what went into my head at that stage was, ah, that Southern Comfort, you've got to look out, you've got to look out for that stuff. Don't drink that stuff. Just stick to that Lamotte Lager. That's the stuff that makes you feel all right, the, the, the Southern Comfort. Just forget that. Um, I did drink quite a lot of Southern Comforts actually over the years, but uh, uh, I also drank an awful lot of lager and a lot of beer. And I look back on it now and... I'm convinced that I drank every single drink after that first one to recreate that feeling, the feeling that I got from the first drink. Uh, and I drank a lot over the years. You know, there was a long period between then and when I finally got into the, uh, the rooms of AA at the age of 35. Um, and I never really saw, if I did see the danger signs, I just ignored them. Or they were just sort of, oh, I'll... I'll stop drinking tomorrow or I'll, I'll cut down, you know. But it never happened, you know. And it was just that one of those gradual, slow slides into alcohol. I can remember um, in my early 20s, I used to make my own beer. I used to make home-brewed beer. And, well, first of all, there's nothing social about drinking your own home-brewed beer because the only reason for drinking that stuff was the content, the stuff that was actually inside it. By the way, it does seem to me that whatever the active ingredient in vodka is, it seems to do the same thing to you lot as it does to us over in the UK. Because <laughs> I hear the old stories and they're exactly the same as ours. Um, but I used to brew this home-brewed beer. And it was pretty disgusting stuff, really. Um, and I used to put it in these pint bottles with plastic cup tops on. And when you pour the beer out, there's a, a kind of a layer of yeasty sludge at the bottom. And you're trying to leave the uh, clear the pour off the clear beer and leave the yeasty sludge at the bottom, half an inch or so. And I can remember more than one occasion um, getting to the end of a night's drinking, uh, and this is, this is going back quite a long time in the, uh, in the UK, and there'd been, I'd, I'd finish a brew. There's no beer left in the house. There's no alcohol left in the house at all. 
there's nowhere open because that, at that time in the UK the pubs used to close, supermarkets, everything, shops used to close and there was nowhere that you could buy a beer unless you were prepared to go down to town and out, out to a nightclub or something. Uh, and getting to that stage where I've drunk the last, the last bottle of beer but the motor's going and I need another drink but there's nothing, there's nowhere I can get one. I'm kind of looking around and the only thing is all of these six or eight bottles and a half inch of sludge at the bottom of these lot. And I can remember on more than one occasion just getting these, pouring the sludge into a pint glass and it's a kind of, it's a lovely sort of custardy yellow sort of colour and consistency. It's lovely stuff. And just knocking it back, just knocking it back. The only reason, because of the alcohol that was in it, there's nothing social about drinking that. Uh, and I've got a tip. If any of you find it necessary to do that in the future, to th- my tip is hold your nose when you drink it. There's two reasons for that. first reason is that if you hold your nose, you can't taste it going down. And the second reason is that when it comes back again, it, if it gets down your nose, it really stinks. <laughs> see, I didn't see those as danger signs. I didn't see those as danger signs. And I drank for years. And uh, at the age of 35, uh, by that stage, I was a, on the outside, I was a, a successful young professional man. Um, I didn't tell you I'm a dentist. Um, at that stage, I had a, a, a practice. I was in a three-man partnership uh, in a practice in Sheffield. Um, I had a wife, two young children, house, cars in the garage, still had money in the bank. On the outside, I just looked like a successful young professional man. But on the inside, I was just bankrupt as a human being. Uh, I could not stop drinking. I desperately, desperately wanted to stop drinking, but I just couldn't do it. I tried every day to stop drinking, and I just failed every single day. I had various attempts at sort of stopping for a few days or cutting down. And everything, everyone failed. Everyone failed. Um, On one Wednesday afternoon, at that stage I used to finish work early on a Wednesday afternoon. Uh, And Angela had taken taken our children to see her parents. Uh, They lived in a a town further south. And I knew that she was coming back uh, later on in the evening. And I finished work early. I finished work at about uh, 3 o'clock. Uh, and I came home, and I can remember coming home, sort of thinking, oh, good, I can have a good drink, and I can sober up a bit before she gets home. Uh, and I can, I can remember, I came home, and I was just drinking neat vodka out of a bottle, just necking it down, thinking, when's it going to happen? When's it gonna, when am I going to get that nice, warm, floaty glow that I used to get from alcohol? Uh, and on that occasion, nothing nice happened at all. It was like a switch, just going from sober to drunk to the uncontrollable drunk. Oh, no, done it again. Room spins. Uh, I'd kind of controlled the nausea by that stage, actually. I didn't use to throw up quite as often as I, as I did before. That was just through practice. Um, but I knew, at that point, I knew that I couldn't stop drinking, but the stuff just didn't work anymore. And that is the most horrible, lonely, frightening place that I've ever been in my life. And I never, ever, ever want to go back there again. In my local meetings, they, uh, they say, pick a, a couple of memories uh, of 
towards the end of your drinking or some point, some memories of your drinking that, you, that you're really ashamed about or that you don't want, and hold on to those, because if you can remember those, that's where you came from. If you can remember those, you may not have to go back there again. Uh, and Angela came home later on that evening, and uh, I sort of tearfully sort of comforted her, I can't stop drinking. And we had this sort of, uh, we'd done a f- sort of a few on occasions before going around and finding the hidden bottles and sort of pouring them down the sink sort of ceremoniously and never ever again, you know, until the next morning. Um, but this time, alcohol had beaten me into that point of reasonableness, into, the, uh, into a state of reasonableness where I was defeated, you know, and I knew that I needed help and uh, I wanted help at that point. It was that little window. And I can remember that uh, she asked me what I was going to do uh, and, what I, and I said, I will phone my doctor tomorrow. I'll go and see my doctor tomorrow. And this is the bit where, this is the kind of higher power bit or something that came not from me. Because what I also said was, and if I don't, then you phone him. Because I think something inside my head knew that I'd try and wheedle my way out of it. But I was just surrendered enough just to put that little, uh, the little extra kick in there. Uh, and we went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I could remember what I'd said and I thought oh how am I going to get out of this one you know I've got to do something or if I don't do something then she's going to find out so what I said was I'll try it once more on my own and if you ever see me with a drink in my hand again then phone my doctor but don't phone him yet I'm just going to try not drinking once more and I went to work that day, and uh, uh, I got through the day somehow or other. And when I came home from work that day, Angela had phoned the AA helpline, and she strongly suggested that it would be a good idea if I did the same myself. And uh, I know which side my bread's buttered, so I did. I phoned this guy, and he did the usual 12-step call. You know, he told me some of his story, uh, and he said. He said something within the first sort of minute or so, which, uh, which sort of got me. He said, he said, of course you suffer from an, an emotional illness. And I thought, how can you see inside my head from the other side of a telephone? You know, it's like, I know there's something wrong with me, but I've never heard anybody say anything like that before. Uh, and he told me when the meetings were in Sheffield, and uh, of course I made excuses not to go to the, to the, uh, the next available meetings. I sort of, uh, I made a, a, a kind of a commitment to actually go and see what AA was like. Uh, that was a Thursday, and I didn't drink through that weekend. And I'm, quite, I'm not quite sure how I actually got through that weekend, because there were some really, really, really tough moments in that weekend that I can, that I can remember. Uh, and I went to an AA meeting the following Monday. So I'm one of these guys who, uh, I bypassed treatment. You know, I just went... It's like the Monopoly game, you know, go straight to jail or whatever it is. I went straight to AA. I bypassed treatment. Uh, I went straight to AA. So I did all my uh, withdrawing at home, you know, the lots and lots of sort of, not sleepless nights, but waking up in the early hours, spending quite a few hours just in bed, sweating, and uh, quite a lot of shakes in the morning, which um, it's okay if you're doing extractions, but when you're carving those little MOD amalgams and your hands shaking, you know. It's a little bit more awkward. Uh, 
But I got to this first AA meeting on the, on the Monday night, and I heard, you know, just like AA meetings all over the world, exactly the same things. The guy who shared that night had been sober for 14 years. And I thought, why don't you go out and celebrate? I mean, you're obviously cured. You just go out and have a drink now. Uh, and I heard the two major things that I heard, again, as usual, are keep coming back and don't drink. Uh, and I did those two. I didn't drink, and I went back to another meeting two days afterwards on a Wednesday. Uh, and I, I had enough of a desire not to drink to continue to go through all of that tough stuff to start with. I, one of the reasons that I continue to do what I do now is because I wouldn't like to have to get sober again. It was really hard work doing it that way. Um, I didn't enjoy the first few weeks of sobriety. It was tough work. But I wanted to stop drinking enough. I was so scared of going back to that place of just being utterly incapable of stopping on my own that I was prepared to put up with it. Uh, and I continued going to meetings and not drinking. Um, and they said things like, don't pick up the first drink and you won't get drunk. And I thought, it can't be that simple. If it's that simple, I would have thought of it. And then I thought, well, actually, that's very good advice, but how do you do that? I mean, how do you just go through a day without picking up a drink at the end of it? You know, that's my problem. I can't get through a day without drinking at the end of it. I can remember innumerable occasions driving to work with a, a throbbing head and a dim memory of what had been going on the night before. Sort of, usually it was just watching television, but I could sort of vaguely remember what was going on. And just thinking, what happened? What happened last night? I did it again. I did it again. And just getting this absolute fierce determination right, today I'm not going to drink, that's it today I am not going to drink and I really, 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 really meant it, you know if you could have tested that somehow, my resolve was absolute, I was not, there was nothing on earth that was going to make me drink unfortunately when I got to work, people didn't do what they were supposed to do you know, things didn't go the way, the way they were meant to go and I used to get this, just get wound up inside and just get this pressure that would build up and build up and build up. Until at, at some point during the day, and it was usually sort of mid-morning or so, mentally I would just say, ah, oh, sod it, I'll have a drink when I get home tonight. And uh, I made my mental surrender to vodka. You know, I will drink tonight. And strangely enough, every single time that I decided I was going to have a drink, I ended up having a drink. Every single time that I decided I wasn't going to have a drink, I changed my mind, and I did have one. You know, that's where I'm powerless over alcohol. I have no mental defense. As soon as I get that idea inside my head that I will have a drink, then I have one. Um, so I'd come home from work thinking, I've had a hard day at the orifice. I'm just going to have a couple of cans of beer to wind down. Everybody just has a couple of drinks just to wind down. I'm not going to go for the vodka that's hidden around the house tonight. It's just... One or two cans of beer. And just the usual story, uh, as soon as I started drinking, somewhere or other down that first or second can, I just lost control. And I was straight for vodka I got hidden around the house. To wake up the next morning, same thing. Hazy recollection of what went on before. Right, I'm not going to drink today. And that went on for a long, long time. So I knew 
this idea of just don't pick up the first drink. Well, that's a really good idea, but how do you do it? How do you actually just get through the day without needing to do it at the end of the day? Uh, and they didn't have any magic answers. It was just, well, keep coming back. Yeah. Keep coming back. Uh, listen. Uh, get people's telephone numbers. Start talking to people. Uh, and they all seemed a bit... Not quite on my intellectual level, these guys. It was just sort of street AA. And after a few weeks, this guy, I met this guy in a meeting called Paul, who, he's an incredibly intelligent man. Uh, he's not done very much of his intelligence, well he has now, but uh, the disease caught him early, so he missed his educational bit of his, of his life in his, in his early years. Uh, and he seemed to be on my level, so I thought, ah, this is it, this is the intellectual branch of AA, and I'll this is what I need. And uh, he made it complicated enough for me to actually accept it. <laughs> so I started talking to this guy, you know, and uh, we started looking at the, uh, at the steps. And I asked him, first of all, I had this idea that I needed one of these hot flashes like, uh, like Bill W got, and that's the only way I'm going to get sober. And I can remember asking him, just after a few weeks, so... How did it happen for you then? How did you get this hot flash? And he just laughed. And uh, he said, no, it doesn't happen like that. It's an awakening. It's not a, uh, most people don't get an experience. Most people get an awakening. Um, so we, we started looking at the steps. And uh, well, I got up to step four. I actually wrote a step four with, uh, uh, under Paul's guidance. But a few things happened around that time which, uh, which made, you, uh, made me uncomfortable going to meetings in Sheffield. Uh, I met a patient. This, I'd been sober for about two months, I think it was, and I met a patient in an AA meeting. Uh, and that was okay because he was there for the same reason I was, and he was sober about the same length of time as well. Uh, so I talked to him afterwards, and that was okay. Uh, but then I met a patient who was a caretaker at a building where a meeting was being held, and I thought, ah, that's different. I was so... Uh, worried about my anonymity. I was so worried that if word got out, it might damage me professionally. That's, uh, that made me really twitchy about going to, uh, to the meetings in Sheffield. So I discussed it with Paul, and he, and he said, well, why don't you go to meetings further afield? And he introduced me to this uh, bunch of AA big book step fanatics that I associate with now in meetings that are uh, just outside Sheffield. Uh, and once I started going to those meetings and got in touch with these guys, that was it. I stood no chance. You know. I was going to get well. Um, they said some really sort of strange things. They said things like, the head that brings you in will be the head that takes you out. You know, they stressed that I had to change. If I didn't change, I was going to go out and drink again. Um, they told me my head was like a really bad neighbourhood. I should never, ever, ever go in there alone. They told me I've got this faulty wiring. You know, something's not quite wired right upstairs. Uh, and if I try to fix myself, I'm using the bit that doesn't work right to try and fix itself. And it's never going to work. You know, my thinking's not quite right. They, I heard all of those, you know, those little sort of horrible sayings that you hear in the early days, like, you know, Life beyond your wildest dreams. Just used to, God, I used to hate them, hate them, hate them. I might not just chat them out myself now all, all the time, but uh, at the time it was just all these trite little sayings that just really used to grate. 
But that one actually stuck with me. Um, and it wasn't actually all that long uh, before I actually realized that it was, it, was, it was actually becoming true. And I realized this in a, in a meeting once. I'd been sober for about six months or so. And uh, one of these step-fanatic Nazis said, uh, so have you got to the stage yet where you wake up in the morning and you haven't got that knot in your stomach? And I thought, ah, yes. Yeah. I could wake up in the morning and my stomach was calm. Three inches behind my belly button, up to, you know, for years. As soon as I woke up, it was like a clench just behind my belly button. You know, that knot in my stomach. And that had gone. Um, I realize now that a life beyond my wildest dreams, I couldn't have imagined a life where I can wake up in the mornings just calm and self-confident, not full of fear, remembering what had gone on the night before, knowing that the people around me actually enjoy my company, they actually love me for what I am. Uh, I had no idea that life could be like that. So it is beyond my wildest dreams, because my wildest dreams when I came in, I had no conception that that was actually available. So I sort of associated with these guys. Um, one of them, a guy called Ron, who's been sober for about 27 years, I think it is now, um, got sober in Liverpool. In fact, he's actually, my friend Paul is in the, in the audience down here, and it's one of those the little sort of little sneaky little things. His sponsor, Ron, is Paul's great-grand-sponsor. Because Paul's sponsor is my last sponsor's sponsor. <laughs> no, other way around. <laughs> and Ron sponsored John, who sponsored Alan, who sponsors Paul. And it's just, you know, and it all goes back to Dr. Bob and Bill, doesn't it? That's where it all started. Uh, you could trace the tracks back, I'm sure. And Ron says he, he got sober in Liverpool, and he says he has six little things. He said, if you want to get well, don't drink. Go to as many meetings as you possibly can. Be totally honest with yourself at all times. Treat everybody else the way that you'd like to be treated, even when they don't deserve it. Do the opposite of everything you've ever done with respect to alcohol and let the human race get on with its own affairs and don't interfere. Uh, and he said, if you can get any of those, number one being essential, don't drink. If you can get any of the rest of those five in your life on any particular given day, in any of those combinations, then you'll be all right. Uh, and that didn't sound too complicated. That didn't sound too difficult to me. So hanging around with these other people, I, I, I kind of moved away from my uh, sponsor at the time, Paul, uh, and... Uh, Got to a point, we were going to a stick, big book step, uh, sorry, a big book meeting, uh, using the Joe and Charlie tapes. And we got to a point in that, uh, in the tapes, so it happened that when I started going to those meetings, we'd started right at the beginning of the tapes. And when we got up to step five, I couldn't share honestly anymore because I hadn't done it. I'd done step four, but I hadn't done step five. Uh, and I felt so uncomfortable in that meeting, uh, going to that meeting and not being able to share honestly because I hadn't done the fifth step that I asked, this other guy, John, to be my sponsor. Uh, and he took me through the rest of the steps. So I was shamed into taking step five. I, mean, I don't care how it works now. I mean, I'll do it, you know, whatever it takes. Just get it done. Um, and I can remember leaving work with my step four, tucked underneath the carpet, uh, in, underneath the, uh, the seat of my car, just 
making sure that it's nice and safe and nobody else sees it. Uh, I can remember leaving work to do my fifth step with Paul, uh, with John rather, thinking, part of my head was saying, you don't need to do this. You don't need to do this, you know. I'd been sober for 15 months, I think, at that stage. And part of it was going, you've been sober for quite a long time now. Uh, uh, life's better. Work's better. Uh, there's absolutely no reason to do this. You're about to take this stuff that you've never, ever told another human being, and you're about to share it with some guy who's got no training, no qualifications whatsoever. It's just don't do it. You don't need to. And the other part of my head was from those AA Nazis who were saying, four and five to stay alive. <laughs> and I got the impression, you know, I, had, I, went, I really knew that if I didn't do the whole of the program, then I was going to drink again. Uh, and so I just went and did it. And I made a sort of a, a decision. I think I did a kind of a third step, actually, on the way to, uh, to John's house that night, which was that whatever he said uh, out of doing that fifth step, whatever he told me to do, I would do it, and I would not question it at all. Uh, and I held to that while ever John was my sponsor. I've just, uh, just done whatever he told me to do and didn't question it whatsoever. And, uh, you know, surprise, surprise, I got well. I want to just share a bit about uh, what I felt like after I'd done the ninth step, after I'd actually finished making those major amends, after I'd gone round and uh, done all the major amends that I needed to do. That is the point at which I really felt that this was real, you know, that I could actually stay sober for as long as I wanted. You know, as long as I did the work, it was possible for me to stay sober. And it wasn't like I just, 24 hours at a time, I woke up one morning and it's, I wonder if I'm going to stay sober today. It was like, I wake up in the morning and I know I'm going to stay sober today as long as I do the things that I need to do during the day. Uh, it felt like I was in the middle of the bed the middle of the AA bed. Uh, I, even up to that stage, this is about 18 months into sobriety, I'd always kind of felt that I was just on the periphery, that everybody else in the meetings didn't quite treat me the same way as they treated everybody else. You know, that I was still just on the outside, not quite right in there. But that's the point at which I really felt that I was part of it, part of AA, that I really belonged. And it just felt like like I could, I could grow in any way that I wanted to from that point. It felt like I'd just put the, pe put the past to bed, to rights. I'd done what I could uh, just to set it all to rights. I knew that I wasn't going to drink again as long as I carried on doing what I needed to do. And I could just, I was free to grow, you know, sickening really. But uh, it, that feeling has been with me most of the time since then, through the rest of my, of my sobriety. You know, that self-confidence, the knowledge that I need never drink again as long as I do what's necessary on a daily basis. Um, it was around about that point that I actually got in touch with the, uh, the British Doctors and Dentists group. Uh, I actually did it through the sick dentist scheme, not through sort of asking for help or anything, but more as, as, as part of the 12 step to see if I could do anything to help. And uh, I was put in contact with a, um, a dentist in, uh, in Doncaster, uh, who I finally managed to actually uh, track down and, and talk to. And the major thing that came out from that, from talking to another dentist in recovery, I'd, I'd always felt up to that point that it's okay to be a dentist 
and it's okay to be an alcoholic, but it's not quite okay to be an alcoholic dentist. You know, that somehow or other, being an alcoholic dentist, I was letting the profession down. Uh, that I was, I hadn't, I didn't know anybody else in the same position until that point. And as soon as I met Peter over in Doncaster and we talked some things through, it was like, ah, here's another guy who's exactly like me. Not just, you know, like in the AA rooms, but actually professionally and the way that we do things is the same. Um, and I started going to the BDDG meetings in, uh, in England. Uh, and I met Kevin not, not too long after that. Um, and he sort of encouraged us to start a meeting in Sheffield, uh, which we did. And that's now a, uh, the second largest group, actually, in, in, uh, in England at the moment, mainly because there's a treatment centre fairly local, which uh, carts people out to us. Um, but it's a strong, healthy group. Uh, and it's been fantastic over the years to see people like me coming into, uh, uh, into the treatment centre, first of all, uh, coming out, doing what they need to do, and getting well. I started going to the BDDG conventions. Uh, I think the first one was in 95 in York, 94 or 95 in York. And uh, not long after that, Kevin browbeat me into helping him to organize the convention. So now we actually uh, we organize our, our annual conventions together. And that's a whole different ball game to actually, um, to, to actually put some of the organizational skills that I've got into... Uh, uh, to good use uh, and it's particularly uh, it's particularly good to see you guys coming over I, mean, I know it's a uh, from our point of view it's a long way to come over here so I know how far it is going the other way and for you lot to, uh, to come over and uh, uh, support our convention is fantastic we started coming here in 1999 uh, into IDAA, and again, that's kind of opened my eyes even more to see so many. I mean, you know, our little convention is about a tenth the size of this, <laughs> and we think it's big. <laughs> so to see so many recovering doctors and dentists in one place is, uh, is fantastic. We keep it, uh, uh, we try to make it a part of our, our family holiday. So over the years in sobriety, life has gone up and up for me. Um, professionally, from a sort of a dingy, dark, sort of fairly miserable three-man practice, three-partnership practice in, in Sheffield, uh, that partnership split up. I stayed with one of the partners. We bought a second practice. Uh, so we have two practices now, and there are six other dentists working for us. Uh, and we're really highly regarded. It's getting to one of those sad stages now where we're getting to be fairly senior members of the profession and start going on committees and things and uh, we're highly regarded and I'm very proud actually of the, uh, uh, the two practices that we have. Angela is our practice manager. Uh, my partner Andy at the moment is uh, he's just been climbing a mountain in Ecuador and I think he's off in the, uh, the Galapagos Islands fo photographing things at the moment. Um, but we, we try hard. I don't quite know whether Andy, my partner Andy is actually aware how much of this program, uh, how much of the 12 traditions are actually applied in our workplace. Because having two of us, having the practice manager uh, and one of the partners on a 12-step program, um, we have quite a lot of influence in the way that the practice runs. And I think by default, an awful lot of the AA principles get involved uh, and get incorporated into our working affairs. 
two of our nurses are in the fellowship as well. Two of our nurses got sober since, uh, since I got sober, which is interesting, I have to say. I have to keep their recovery completely separate from work. And I managed to do that. At work, it's just completely professional. Occasionally, we'll see them outside work. Uh, and then it's a different, uh, different ball game. But at work, it's just a purely professional arrangement. So my life has taken off. When I came into recovery, and they said, don't drink, but it's only one day at a time. I mean, I saw through that instantly. It's one day at a time for the rest of my life. You know, don't try and tell me it's just for today, because I know it's for the rest of my life. My idea of, of sobriety was, or my sort of concept of, of sobriety was, it's going to be just horrible, because the few times that I'd stayed sober for a few days, but a few days of sobriety together, it was just oh, awful. It was long and grey and boring and dull and painful, and people were in my way, and they were all out to get me. And as soon as I started drinking again, the world just mellowed, you know, and it all became manageable and all of these horrible people disappeared again. So my idea of not drinking was that that's what life was going to be like, you know, it's going to be like a, a cold, ris- miserable, wet November's day in England, you know, where you sort of, you trug along like this and the rain's dripping down the back of your coat and it's... And you can't see where you're going because it's all foggy. That's what I imagined sobriety was going to be like. And uh, if it had been like that, I would have carried on drinking, I have to say. I don't think I could, uh, I could stay sober without life being pretty much like it was yesterday. You know, a sunny day. It's been completely different from what I uh, imagined. I couldn't see how you could actually have fun and not drink. And the people in AA taught me how to do that. You guys taught me how to do that, you know. I, all I have to do is fairly simple, just don't drink, go to meetings, read the big book, get a sponsor, work the steps, do service, one day at a time. And here I am, safe and sane and sober, slants his eyes, uh, and thoroughly enjoying life. And I just leave you, this is a little tradition that we, uh, everybody has of leaving you with something. This is going to ruin your cornflakes if you haven't already uh, heard this one before. A little prayer. God, let everybody treat me today the way I treated everybody yesterday. Thank you.